0: You are listening to National Security Law Today. Welcome to National Security Law Today, the podcast of the American Bar Association Standing Committee on Law and National Security. I am Nicole, a member of the committee staff. If you've listened to us before, you'll know that the ABA Standing Committee on Law and National Security recently held the 28th Annual Review of the Field of National Security Law Conference on November 1st and 2nd. Today's episode is going to be one of the speeches from the conference, the keynote address from Thursday, November 1st, featuring Glenn Gristel, the general counsel of the National Security Agency. In his speech, he discusses technology and privacy and the conflicts between them and the state of the law on those issues. For more about the conference or about Mr. Gerstel's speech and the following panel, Fourth Amendment Surveillance in the Future, please visit us online at americanbar.org slash natsecurity.
1: Computers are changing our lives faster than any other invention in our history. Our society is becoming increasingly dependent on information technologies, which are changing at an amazing rate. Combine this rapid explosion in computing power with the fact that information systems are being connected together around the world without regard to geographic boundaries. This offers both opportunities and challenges, among them vulnerabilities which represent severe security flaws and risks to our nation's security, public safety, and personal privacy. That quotation sounds like it might have come from a hearing earlier this year. But it was said by Senator Fred Thompson more than 20 years ago, well before the invention of the iPhone or YouTube and just at the dawn of email. The hearing, actually the first-ever Congressional hearing on cybersecurity, featured some hackers who gave the senators a clear and simple message. Our computers, networks, and software are dangerously insecure. Despite this, it would take decades for our nation to appreciate the cyber threat during which time we would see a steady accretion of malicious cyber activity. Inflection points often go unnoticed, and in retrospect, it's really not that surprising that the hacker's testimony wasn't, rep- wasn't uh, appreciated for the dire warning that it represented. Looking back at the 1990s, we can now realize that perhaps as the Internet was taking off, perhaps we missed an opportunity to chart a different course as to our cybersecurity. I bring this up today because we stand in an analogous moment in history. If 20 years ago represented a tipping point of sorts for the Internet, then perhaps we are now at, or even past, a comparable, broader tipping point as to the overall digital revolution. The so-called fourth industrial revolution is upon us. As commentator Kevin Drum recently put it well in Foreign Affairs, the world sits at the dawn of a new age and technological advances are set to make traditional forces of change no more than mere footnotes when we, or our robot descendants, write the history of this digital revolution. So maybe it's no surprise that we're missing this tipping point, too. Both the statistics, such as 20 billion connected devices, and the very concepts of profound change that we hear from futurists and technologists are mind-numbing. Of course, we aren't doomed to watch this wave of profound change wash over us without some consideration. Are we missing another opportunity here? Challenging though it may be, we can examine and prepare for some aspects of this digital revolution that will have as fundamental implications for us as the Industrial Revolution did for the 19th century Western society. That revolution will have one particular consequence that will impact every one of us in personal and far-reaching ways. And it's one that has special meaning for us as lawyers. I'm speaking of the effect on our privacy. Although we continue to forge ahead in the adoption of new technologies, we, we haven't, simply haven't confronted as a U.S. society what privacy means in a digital age. If you look at the advent of other novel technologies from the automobile to electricity, regulations inevitably lagged, but we didn't let the technology get too far out in, in advance before our laws and societal norms caught up, but not so today. Has there ever been a time where technological change has been this rapid, this ubiquitous, and this impactful? It's no wonder that our societal norms and legal structures, especially in the area of privacy, have failed to keep pace. It's worth examining those gaps so we can see where additional thinking and action will be required. Given my vantage point, on this occasion I'll focus on how the federal government affects the privacy rights, or at least expectations, of the public. I'll start by looking at the approach taken by the judiciary in fashioning the scope of our privacy interests, and then turn to some examples in the legislative arena. I'll move on to implications for the private sector, and then conclude by suggesting what are our responsibilities as lawyers in this critical area. So let's start our examination with an overview of how our judicial system has constructed our privacy regime, at least relative to the federal government. As you all know, privacy in the U.S. is a notion that has traditionally been rooted in the Fourth Amendment. Perhaps that comes as no surprise, given how our country was formed and how one of the enduring debates throughout our history has been the scope of government's involvement in our society. In any event, you may recall that the text of the Fourth Amendment makes no mention of the word privacy, and nowhere else in the Constitution or the Bill of Rights is a general right to privacy expressed. This is understandable, though, when you consider both the rudimentary state of technology at the time and the fact that the Fourth Amendment grew out of the experiences of the colonists who resented the British Crown's use of writs of assistance to force entry into their homes. The Fourth Amendment didn't mention privacy then because protecting one's physical property from unreasonable searches and seizures was sufficient. This also explains why, if you had reviewed the first hundred years' worth of the Supreme Court's many occasions to consider the Fourth Amendment, you would have found cases focusing on physical intrusion and property rights, but not a word about privacy interests as such. Nor was there a decision when the requisite technology later developed that electronic surveillance itself qualified as a search or seizure for purposes of that amendment. The clearest expression of the need for a change in legal approach appears in the prescient writings of Justice Louis Brandeis. In his seminal law review article with Samuel Warren entitled The Right to Privacy and in his famous and far-sighted dissent in the 1928 Supreme Court case of Olmstead versus the United States, Brandeis proposed to separate the concept of privacy from other legal principles and recognize it as something entirely distinct. But you would have had to wait until 1967 for the Supreme Court in Katz versus the United States to adopt that concept and overturn the almost four decades old ruling in Olmstead. Writing for the majority, Justice Potter Stewart held that the Fourth Amendment protects people, not places, and in his concurrence, Justice Harlan fleshed out a test for identifying a reasonable expectation of privacy. This test was then further defined throughout the 1970s in United States v. Miller and Smith v. Maryland, where the Court held that there's no reasonable expectation of privacy for information such as bank records or telephone numbers that's voluntarily given to others such as bank employees or the telephone company. In the years that followed, our Fourth Amendment jurisprudence continued to develop in this manner, with courts largely focusing on the type and location of the surveillance taking place based upon the facts of each particular case to determine whether a protected privacy interest was implicated. I might add, as an aside, that almost nowhere in the case law is the real focus on the actual content of the communication. As if we needed any further evidence of this very case-specific approach to the development of our privacy and surveillance regime, the Supreme Court, just a few months ago, gave us what the Court itself branded as a narrow decision. I am of course referring to United States v. Carpenter, which addressed whether the Fourth Amendment could be violated by a warrantless search and seizure of historical telephone records, cell phone records, that reveal the location and movement of the user. The court held that the government's acquisition of such records, or at least seven or more days of them, constituted a search under the Fourth Amendment, which required a warrant because it violated a person's legitimate expectation of privacy in the record of his physical movements. In coming to that conclusion, the court noted that, apart from disconnecting a phone from a network entirely, there's almost no way of avoiding leaving behind an electronic trail of location data. To the court, then, The location information was an entirely different species of record than, say, bank records or phone numbers, and in no meaningful sense could it be said that the user voluntarily assumed the risk of turning over what the court called a comprehensive dossier of his physical movements. So as we stand here today, it's too early to be able to discern the full ramifications of Carpenter. But one point is clear. The Carpenter case serves to highlight one of the major challenges in applying our Fourth Amendment jurisprudence in this digital age. By the very nature of our judicial system, which does not allow for advisory opinions, our courts are necessarily confined to deciding cases based on the specific facts or the technologies with which they are presented. These decisions are, therefore, inherently backward-looking, which feels like the wrong approach when addressing rapidly developing technology. By contrast, tort law principles can be extended to facts beyond the Beyond on the case at issue, because the concepts of negligence can be intuitively applied to a wide range of facts and situations. Not so where the very legal principle is rooted in, and indeed expressed in, terms of the precise technology before the, before the court in the case. Now, I'm not in any way being critical of our judiciary. Rather, I'm simply pointing out that the limitations of our case or controversy scheme can result in a patchwork quilt of legal precedent that takes into account only the particular technology before the court in each case, which in turn leads to decisions that are sometimes hard to reconcile or are distinguishable only by factors that seem of dubious significance. Indeed, the very fact that the nine justices generated five distinct opinions in Carpenter itself makes clear that even the best legal minds are divided over the right approach. And this was in a relatively straightforward case involving fairly well-estepped fairly well-established technology, where where there already was ample Supreme Court precedent about the government's access to other types of cell phone information and its use of technology to track a person's physical movements. So our experience tells us that if we want to be forward-looking to embrace future technologies and have more predictive legal principles, the legislative branch also has an important role to play, which I'd like to turn to now. While the courts have established the outer bounds of the Fourth Amendment, Within those amendments, it has been Congress that has enacted relatively strong privacy protection, but only in specific areas. Most significantly, where Congress has chosen to act, it has often been to address only specific problems about which there was widespread consensus. These issues are technically complex to begin with, and we all know that political cord can be difficult to achieve. And thus, in many cases, given the pace of technology, we've been left with either aging or no laws at all. Take, for example, how Congress tried to address new technology back in the 1980s. At the time, the law focused mostly on privacy protections related to telephone calls, and it was said to be hopelessly out of date. Of particular concern to Congress at the time was the Supreme Court's decision in Miller, and the increasing adoption of both email and computerized record keeping systems. Because this information had been voluntarily conveyed to a third party, this suggested under prevailing doctrine, that little it was entitled to little or no constitutional protection. So in 1986, Congress passed the Electronic Communications Privacy Act, commonly known as ECPA, which established a new framework that had provided varying requirements for law enforcement to compel the disclosure of the content of electronic communications, depending in part on how long they'd been in storage. For those communications that have been stored in storage for less than 180 days, a search warrant based on probable cause is required. In contrast, for those that have been in storage over 180 days, more than 180 days, only a court order showing relevance to an investigation is required. The rationale for this distinction was the state of technology at the time. In 1986, most electronic communication systems, including nascent email services, did not retain electronic records for longer than six months. As a result, Congress concluded that, quote, to the extent that the record is kept beyond that point, it's closer to a regular business record maintained by a third party and therefore deserving of a different standard of protection. Regardless of how you feel about where Congress drew this line, there can be no debate that due to subsequent developments in technology and commerce, the environment in which this framework was adopted differs markedly from today's. Almost universally, we now conduct most of our affairs online, we have access to virtually limitless, inexpensive electronic storage, and as many have pointed out, the fact that we choose to keep key electronic records longer suggests that they are deserving of more protection, not less. It also raises the larger question of whether this regime still makes sense, given these new realities. In the decades following ECPA's enactment, Congress has considered but not approved legislative updates to the statute. Although it did pass the Cloud Act earlier this year to address a different, pressing ECPA-related issue involving law enforcement access to electronic communications stored abroad. As I mentioned earlier though, much like other times when Congress has acted in the privacy arena, the Cloud Act served to resolve only a very specific problem about which there was widespread consensus. In my view, No matter how highly we think of Congress's efforts, one-off handcrafted solutions like the Cloud Act are, as a political matter, simply too time and labor intensive to meet our needs in this age of rapidly developing technology. The situation isn't all that different with respect to privacy in the context of our national security laws, most notably the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act or FISA. As many of you are well familiar, FISA was originally enacted in 1978, to provide the executive branch with a court-authorized process for conducting electronic surveillance against foreign powers or their agents operating inside the United States. In creating such a system, Congress sought to carefully balance and protect both our national security and the privacy and civil liberties of all Americans. And indeed, the statute has done so admirably for more than four decades now. Much like ECPA, however, FISA's structure which is largely rooted in a four-part definition of electronic surveillance has remained basically unchanged, even as technology has zoomed ahead. Admittedly, Congress did respond to changing technology through the enactment of Section 702 of part of the FISA Amendments Act of 2008, which is one of our most important foreign intelligence surveillance authorities. But taking a step back, we should recognize that this section represents only a small part of the larger FISA framework, and it, again, addresses only a discrete technological problem. The rest of FISA is still based on its original definitions with the result, in my opinion, that we've wound up up with a complex multi-agency statutory scheme that hinges in part on the type of collection and the location of collection as well as the purpose and use of collection and that doesn't specifically address such issues as ubiquitous encryption, web-based communications applications, the possibility of intelligence information becoming available through new technologies, and the global dispersion of computer servers and data storage. I mentioned ECPA and FISA and some of their deficiencies today not because I'm calling for any particular set of changes or improvements. Rather, I believe they are emblematic of how technological changes can drive the need to update statutory frameworks and they demonstrate the shortcomings of how we've attempted to address these issues legislatively in the past. These shortcomings become even more noticeable when you consider how our privacy laws regulate the private sector. As I noted earlier, the legal restrictions we put in place to ensure our notions of privacy here in America are mostly focused on curtailing government. By contrast, we've largely let market forces, which is to say no regulation, establish whatever individual rights we may have in this area relative to corporations and other businesses. True, the private sector's collection and use of our personal data are in some areas subject to a complex assortment of federal and state statutes. But many of these statutes apply only to particular sectors or types of data, for example, your financial or health information, about which there is a deep consensus on a heightened need for privacy. The rest provide only broad consumer protections and are really not focused on privacy, per se. Admittedly, there are benefits to this approach, which allows wide latitude for the states to legislate and reduces the risk that there'll be the sorts of unintended consequences that often accompany broad, comprehensive legal regimes. On the other hand, state rather than national level solutions raise the specter of inconsistency and complexity. Compare for just a minute the U.S. regime to how privacy is regulated in Europe. There, the concept of privacy focuses on the dignity of the person and very much extends to private sector activity of all types. This approach has traditionally resulted in laxer regulation of government surveillance, but much stricter and more comprehensive laws about, for example, data protection, credit reporting, and workplace privacy. The General Data Protection Regulation, or GDPR, which came into effect earlier this year throughout the EU, is a perfect example. GDPR instituted a new set of wide-ranging and significant privacy protections and applies broadly to all EU organizations and companies around the globe holding or processing the personal data of people in the EU. Europe is far from being alone in passing comprehensive privacy laws. According to one estimate, more than 100 countries now have some form of privacy laws and some 40 other countries have pending legislation or initiatives in the works. This is not to say that there haven't been attempts here in the U.S. to strengthen and standardize our privacy laws applicable to the private sector. Various approaches have been the subject of widely publicized hearings before the U.S. Senate and the Federal Trade Commission in recent months. The National Institute for Standards and Technology has also begun looking at the issue with the goal of issuing a privacy framework in the same vein as its wildly heralded uh, cybersecurity framework and in part as a result of the federal government's failure to uh, to adopt a consumer privacy bill of rights, California recently enacted its own Consumer Privacy Act, which extends a broad range of new consumer privacy rights and data security protections. No matter how you view these efforts, it's clear that many in our society feel that the approach we've taken to regulating privacy in the private sector is increasingly problematic. The recent level of Public and congressional attention to the Facebook Cambridge Analytica issue is illustrative of that feeling. With the international community pushing ever more aggressive laws and the global nature of our digital society, the choice regarding how we address privacy here in the US might soon be out of our hands. Companies operating internationally are being forced to adapt to regulations implemented in foreign countries. If we want to play a role in shaping those policies to suit our own notions of privacy, we need to get engaged. This will require the public and private sectors to take a holistic approach to addressing privacy concerns associated with our increasing reliance on digital technologies. Perhaps, as in Europe, we need new comprehensive requirements to regulate how our personal information can be used, shared, or disseminated online. Or perhaps we don't need any additional government regulation as simply updating our current laws to reflect the state of technology today might be sufficient. Alternatively, voluntary industry-generated approaches might also meet our needs. I'm not here to advocate any of these or other potential approaches, but rather my point is simply that we must have a societal dialogue about how we want to confront the problem. Even more broadly, though, we need to be asking ourselves the more fundamental question of what privacy really means to us here in the U.S. as it relates to our interactions both with the government and with the private sector. Under our current legal framework, the same piece of electronic information may be protected from interception or disclosure to the government, but it could be disseminated, used, or sold by a private company with few, if any, restrictions. Have we genuinely reflected on whether that's actually the best approach when we consider the forthcoming digital revolution? Moreover, the confluence of the Internet of Things and increased monitoring for cybersecurity purposes imply an almost inconceivable level of knowledge of potential knowledge about an individual. Will we feel comfortable that a machine will see, aggregate, and analyze this data, knowing that there's always the possibility that a human could extract the resulting knowledge? Some have advocates have asserted that a violation of privacy occurs when the government's computers looking, scan a citizen's emails looking for a terrorist email, even though it's all done without human intervention. But at the same time, my private email provider already reads all my emails looking for spam. How do we reconcile this? To be sure, a social media company or a data broker can't put you on trial or in jail, but consider how much information these companies actually know about you, everything from the relatively mundane, like your contact information, to some of your most personal, intimate, and potentially even unconscious interests and habits. Isn't it fascinating that we've reached a point where, arguably, the private sector now has an even greater impact on our privacy than the government? Have we paused to... Consider how to appropriately account for that, or perhaps have we reached the point where we've come to accept this status quo because, to quote Ben Wittes of Brookings, our concept of privacy is so muddled, so situational, and so in flux that we are not quite sure anymore what it is or how much of it we really want. I would submit that a natural and appropriate place to begin these conversations would be to re-examine the Supreme Court's 1967 formulation of our privacy interests. In lieu of evaluating the reasonable expectation of privacy as a threshold and ultimately dispositive question, maybe we could implement it instead by means of a functional approach. This would place the focus more on the type of information at issue, its intimacy and its sensitivity, and how it's protected, including considering whether one truly and voluntarily shared the information with any third parties, while de-emphasizing factors like the type of communication collected, the means by which it was collected, or the location of its collection. It might also result, for example, in stricter controls on information such as medical records and lesser protection for information such as the time, date, duration, and identities of a telephone conversation. And just to be clear, I'm not seeking any diminution of our privacy to facilitate surveillance powers. Actually, I think a cogent approach to this issue and this topic could strengthen our sense of privacy in many respects. And finally, I would also caution that in having these sorts of discussions, we must avoid the temptation to view things in absolutes and to reflexively label ideas as anti-privacy, anti-security, or even unconstitutional just because we think they should be. This will be particularly important when addressing politically and emotionally charged topics like encryption, which undoubtedly will continue to play a significant part of the privacy conversation in the years to come. Rather than simply asserting that any potential weakening of privacy protections, legal, technical, or otherwise, is inherently bad and thus off the table for discussion, we need to be intellectually honest about what interests we are trying to protect, what harms may genuinely occur, and how we should balance these against other potential benefits such as increased safety or convenience. Lapsing into jargon and retreating into our traditional corners will only serve to stall this important debate we should instead be looking to find consensus and principles that we all agree upon. It's undeniable that these are extremely complicated issues with no clear or correct answers. Throughout our nation's history, lawyers have been the leaders in helping our society wrestle with these types of issues and forge a consensus on what's best for our country. So through our very work as lawyers in the national security realm, we are in the vanguard in thinking about privacy in this digital age. And that's why we have a responsibility to use our knowledge and our skills to help lead a constructive dialogue about how to better shape our legal framework in the years to come. Let's not miss this opportunity. Let's not let this inflection point pass us by. I hope that through my remarks today I've contributed in a small part to that process and I thank you for your attention this afternoon.
0: Thank you for tuning in to National Security Law Today, the podcast of the American Bar Association Standing Committee on Law and National Security. You can find us online at AmericanBar.org slash NatSecurity, follow us on Twitter at ABA NatSec, on our Facebook page, or drop us an email at NationalSecurity at AmericanBar.org. We hope you enjoyed today's speech from Glenn Gerstell, General Counsel of the National Security Agency, and that you tune in again next week. From all of us here, thanks for listening. We'll see you soon.